Good evening. Appreciate everyone being here this evening, and I hope that you are excited to jump into a study of a church of the New Testament that we are familiar with this evening. And I want to begin in Acts chapter 17. I've seen a lot of you guys here every night. I appreciate that. And some of you are visiting and guests, and we welcome you tonight. Thank you for being a part of the work here, even this evening. In our context for the week, talking about the tipping point, we've talked about the spiritual battle that we're involved in and what we've turned our attention to beginning Monday night. And we'll go yesterday and tonight and tomorrow as we're looking at some case studies of some New Testament churches, Christians, that are really Christians just like us, people who are seeking to imitate their lives after Christ, just like we are, who had some problems and some struggles in the first century where they were living. They lived in worldly times, and we live in worldly times, and they had problems inside the church, and we sometimes do too. And there were some good things they were, do- they were doing and good things that are happening here. We saw biblical spiritual instruction as to what the, the writers of the New Testament gave them to do to, to shore up their weaknesses and to increase their strengths. And so I want to turn our attention to Acts 17 tonight as we're going to look at the Thessalonian church. As we're talking about these churches, we need to remember that these are not just interesting historical tidbits left for us to to pique our imagination or just to be entertained by. These are churches that are left as holy and divine patterns for what to do and what not to do. And so as we look at the first century church, we know that we want to be the first century church here in the 21st century, and we see that the message then is relevant and it's applicable. It is then and it is today. And I think that the Thessalonian church is an important model for us to look at. Usually the Thessalonian church gets sort of a bad rap from Acts chapter 17 because we we say, oh yeah, something happened in Thessalonica, Thessalonica. But then we get down to verse 11 and it talks about how the Bereans were so much more noble than them. So forget about those Thessalonians. It's the Bereans that you want to be like because they read the Bible every day and search the scriptures daily. But before we do that, we need to realize that we're shortchanging the Thessalonians if we do that, because that was a strong church. That would have been a group to be a part of and really some exciting things going on there. We don't know how many members were in the church there. We don't know how many gospel meetings they held a year if they did that sort of thing or how many different Bible classes they had going on for what age groups or what outreach programs they have. But what we do see are the spiritual qualities that manifested themselves in the work that they did daily. We don't have a lot of specific details, but we have mention of the things they were doing. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. What were they doing? What model did they leave for us as the things we can be doing too? We talked about Corinth on Monday night, about how they needed to grow up in spiritual maturity. They needed to work on fixing the divisions by being unified through Christ, and they needed to develop a godlike love for one another. Those are three overarching attitudes and principles that we need to keep in mind, but there are some more details that we can pull out of that, and that's what we're going to do tonight. Before we get into our major points of tonight's lesson, and I hope you're ready, there's five, not three, there's five, and they're going to be short ones, so we won't stay here all night. I want us to think a little bit about the beginning of the church there. That's why we're in Acts chapter 17. Read with me, beginning in verse 1, Acts 17, 1. Luke records for us, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Pause real quick. This is just after Paul had received what we often call the Macedonian call, and he had headed westward into the Macedonian peninsula, and he had gone to 
to, uh, into Philippi and made his way on down to Thessalonica, then into Berea and later in the chapter into Athens. And so we, we, we're sort of in that point of the context. And in verse 2, it says, In Thessalonica, after he'd gone to the synagogue of the Jews, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And so what we get here, because the, uh, the synagogue environment would be a little bit different from our typical preacher uh, congregation setup. It would, I think, more like a Bible class. There was some conversation to be had there. And so what we were seeing as Paul is reasoning with them and explaining, it gives the sense that maybe he was fielding some questions that they were asking him. And I have those three words boxed in. In verses 2 and 3, he reasoned, he explained, and he proved from Scripture. Of course, he could have just said, well, let me work a miracle real quick so you know that I'm from God and you can believe what I'm saying. But he went to the scripture. These, after all, were Jews who knew the scripture. They were in the synagogue. They were the good Jews. And they were worshiping according to the old law of Moses. And he said, I can show you from the law of Moses that Jesus had to do all of these things. He is the Christ, the Messiah that we've all been waiting for. And so this is a good beginning because it says that uh, not not a few of the leading women, a great many devout Greeks, and some of the Jews were persuaded. Almost seems like he had more, uh, more effect with the, the non-Jews of the society there. But then he sends, he sends uh, the Holy Spirit sends Paul and Silas away to Berea due to some persecution that arises a little bit later in that section. We'll go back to that later. And so Paul finds himself leaving the church at Thessalonica in the midst of great persecution. We remember what, what happened when they, uh, they dragged Jason and some others into the streets and, and, uh, and there was a lot, of, a lot of problems here. And in verse 10 it says, they immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. So a very secretive exit for his safety. But Paul continued to be concerned about what had been going on, wouldn't you? If you were a part of the church there and you had to leave, leaving them in this harmful, dangerous situation and you don't know what's going on. They weren't, it wasn't as easy to communicate as it is now. And so he finds himself in Athens and he sends Timothy back to encourage them and to find out what's going on. So we turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we see beginning in verse 17 of the previous chapter that he had been torn away from them. Those are his words. They sent him away by night. He says, I was torn away from you, but not in heart. I wanted to be there with you. And he says in verse 1 of the next chapter, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. You can understand Paul's concern here. He's saying... I've been telling you that we were going to suffer. That's what Christianity is destined for. It's destined to be a life of suffering. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But he said, I wanted to make sure that this suffering wasn't causing you to be tempted to fall away from the truth of Christ. But Paul sends back good news. 
He continues on in the next couple of verses and he says, Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Isn't it fun to take the book of Acts and put it to these epistles that we usually study all alone by themselves? Well, what's Paul so excited about? It's because there was a lot of persecution going on there. He was really worried. But Timothy's news comes back and he says, the church is strong. They are demonstrating marks of true discipleship. They are showing faith and they are showing love for one another. Remember, faith and love. Love is that that great overarching principle that exemplifies the life of a Christian. Paul gives his assessment of the church in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Go back to chapter 1. Timothy's report, after he had sent him back and said he finally came back to me, Timothy's report to Paul is what prompted him to then write to them, which is why he includes this part about, here's why I sent Timothy, here's what he told me. And so he wants to write to them, and here's how he describes the church. Look in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. First of all, look at verse 2. Paul has a way of really piling on when he gets emotional about things, doesn't he? I like in Ephesians chapter 3 where he says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all you ask or even imagine. He really piles on. God can answer your prayers and then some, to put it lightly. He says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Boy, to have a friend like Paul, wouldn't you just feel loved all the time? He says, I think about you and everybody always, constantly. And I'm always praying for you constantly with all the love that I have in my heart. What a great friend he must have been. But he lists these three spiritual characteristics there in verse 3. And he says, number one, he sees the work of faith that they have. That's a cause for joy. He sees their labor of love and he sees the patience or steadfastness of their hope. So what does this tell us about the church at Thessalonica? Why is this a model church that we need to look at that's going to strengthen us in our spiritual warfare and the battle that we're fighting today? Because it's the same battle that they were fighting then. The first of the five quick things we'll talk about tonight is the fact that the Thessalonian church was a working church. The three phases, the the phrases we just saw, a work of faith, a labor of love, and steadfast, patient hope, those are all three working terms. I mean, obviously work and labor, but patience gives you the idea that you're doing something and you're going to keep doing it even when it gets hard and you're going to endure to the end of that and bear that heavy load. They're working and they're looking out and they're being diligent and they're being patient and they're looking for Christ to give them the results. I've broken this thing. But what we need to see while I'm fixing this is that work is at the core of an effective church. If you've got a church that's not working, you've got a church that's dying. If you have a church that is just so happy to just sit back and enjoy Sunday services and really that's about it. You've got a church that may be happy, but you've got a church that's going to fall apart soon. We have work to do as Christians. 
We have work to do among the Christian brethren here. We have work to do among uh, the Christian body of all believers as we look out for one another in faith and in love for one another in Christ. We have work to do in our communities. He says that it's not only the work, but it's the motive as well. Uh, an interesting thing, a, a quote that I came across, John Wycliffe said, faith relates to the past. It's something you've heard that you believe from the past. Love is to what you're doing right now and hope is to the future. Faith is because of what was what happened in the past and you believe that. And it's the love that you have for one another and for the lost and for Christ that causes you to act today because of the hope that you're looking forward to in the future. These three phases encompass all of our lives. In other words, we're motivated to work for God because of what we believe about what happened in the past. In Hebrews 11, it says that without faith, it's impossible to please him. For who, whoever would draw close to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. What do we believe about God? Do we believe that he's faithful? That he is a rewarder of those who seek him? That he exists? Do we trust in his promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That he made for all generations? It's what we believe about God and about the past that dictates what we're going to do for God today. Because to my knowledge, God hasn't worked any, uh, any majorly recorded miracles recently. But I do know that there are recorded miracles in the Bible. And I believe what God said from the Bible. And I believe what God did for his people. And the spiritual blessing that, blessings that he has put into the world through his son. And it's our faith in God that causes us to work. And it's the love that we have for him and for each other that causes us to work now. And it's anticipation that keeps on pushing us along. But we need to ask, what was the labor and the work that they were so busy with? Well, the work they were doing was making more disciples. Look in verse 13 of the next chapter. Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So what's working here? It says the word of God is at work in the believers. What does it mean if the word of God is working in you? It means that you are living it out and that you are teaching others the word of God and making more disciples. The work compounds. So we see that they're busy. And their effective ministry began with the willingness to receive the truth that Paul had preached. Until we truly believe what scripture says and believe what, who Christ was, then we're not going to be willing to really put the effort into that work. You know, I think about the apostles and sometimes they get a bad rap, bless their hearts, but they had a hard, a hard life to live, a very challenging thing to understand. We feel bad for Peter. We say, Peter, you were with Jesus. Oh, how did you just, how did you not see that? Why did it take you until after he rose from the grave for you to really get the point? Why did it take until Pentecost before you really got it? Well, you know what? It would have taken us that longer, longer. But what we see is someone who believed the truth and that caused him to work. The Thessalonians were busy. They were making more disciples. And so we know that the church is built on the work that it does. But the church has an influence that is dual in nature. Number one, we go back to verse 7 of the first chapter. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7, Paul says, You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. They had become an example. So what was happening is they spread the gospel in way number one by the lives they lived. 
In other words, they didn't have to say a word to show some people that they were following Christ. Has that ever happened to you? By the way that you conduct yourself, by the things you do or don't do that people at least wonder about you? You know, some, some of us people wonder about a little more than others, but have you ever had somebody wonder about you and ask you, you know, I, I notice that you don't, you don't seem to be laughing at the jokes that all these other guys at work are laughing at. What's, why is that? It's because I'm a Christian, because I'm not going to pollute my mind with things like that. You know, they can see from our, our example that we set. That's a strong way to teach others, to teach our friends, to teach our children by the example that we set for them. And the Christians here in Thessalonica were living exemplary lives. They were sounding the word forth by their example to all the believers in the region. But not only that, they were teaching with words. They were sounding out. Look at verse 8. It says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. He says, your example has been teaching people and everybody knows of you because of your example. But he said, not only that, but the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you in the whole region. And people are knowing about that. This phrase sounded, uh, sounding out really is from the same Greek word as an echo. It means we, uh, we say something, what does that echo say back? Well, it only says what you say in the first place. And so the message we hear from Christ, if we are sounding out the message of the gospel, we are only repeating what we've heard. We're an echo of the gospel. Christians today, we are echoes of the gospel. When we sound out that truth, we ought to be an exact replica in what we teach. That's the influence we have as a church, as Christians. In the words that we speak But lest we think those are the most important thing, as important as they are, the lives that we live must be entwined with those so that they are consistent with one another. And those are two ways we can teach. The Thessalonian church was a working church, but it was a Christ-imitating church. In verse 6 of the first chapter, it says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The word there you see imitators or the word followers in some translation is the same Greek word from which we get the word mimic. And you know what it is to mimic somebody. It's where you try to be their mirror. You try to do the exact same thing that they are doing. The Thessalonian Christians weren't just talking about Christ. They were mimicking Christ. They were imitating him. They were following his movements exactly. And that's what Christ has called us to be. He's called us to be imitators of him. People who are mimicking Christ in the way they think, the way they talk, the way they act, the way they love others, the way they treat others. And in that way, we're being representatives of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that being like Christ is the key to Christian unity. We've referred to this passage several times uh, this week. We haven't really read verse 16 yet, but notice what it says there. Ephesians 4 verse 16, it says, From whom, from Christ that is, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So how does the body grow together? How does it build itself up in love? We look at this verse and it says, well, each part has to be working properly. Well, 
how does each part work properly? What is properly? Well, it's when we do what the head is telling us to do. Every body part functions properly when it is obeying the commands from the, the brain, from the head. It says when we are growing into Christ, who is the head, and we're working properly, we're all living like Christ, then we're all going to grow together. If we want unity in the church, we've got to be unified to Christ. Now, sometimes the tendency is a little bit uh, skewed from that. And we get the tendency, well, as long as we are unified to one another, things are okay. And so A.W. Tozer who is a familiar songwriter. We sing many of his songs in our book, and you can look and see a lot of those. But he said that if a hundred pianos were tuned to each other, their pitch would not be very accurate. But if all 100 pianos were tuned to one tuning fork, all of a sudden they would be tuned to each other, if that makes sense. Because when we tune to one another and when pianos are tuned just by the other, there are small little variations that that cause it just to be off a little bit and we end up thinking that we're doing something right and being unified when we're not. But if we all tune, and this, you know, a more appropriate uh, example would be anybody who's been in in high school band and you say, we got to get the tuner out. We got to listen to that note. Somebody's got to get onto this note. We've all got to be onto this note because if we listen to that one person and try to figure it out with each other, it's not going to be just right. But it's the same way with Christians. If we try to adjust to just one another and try to just tune to one another and to be unified with one another, well, we're not going to quite make it. Rather, if we tune to the head, if we all spend our time focusing on trying to be as much like Christ as possible, you know what? We're going to be like one another. We're going to be tuned together perfectly because we're tuned to Christ, who is the head. That's the key. Being a Christ-imitating church, that's what it's going to cause us to grow. The church there was also a suffering church. We've seen a little bit about this already from Acts chapter 17 and what Paul said at the end of chapter 2. But look, at, look again in verse, uh, verse 6 of chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 6. It says there, they had become imitators of us in the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Even in persecution, what were they experiencing? Were they saying, ah, I don't, I, I sort of wish I hadn't become a Christian right now. I didn't know it was going to be so tough. I didn't know there was going to be such opposition. No, they received it and they endured the affliction with joy. They were full of joy. But joy that only the Holy Spirit can provide. It wasn't because they were just in a really cool club and they thought there were some great benefits of hanging out with one another. But it's because they looked to the head and they knew that they had peace from him because what he had done for them. And that joy that comes from the Spirit is not dependent on our circumstances at all. That's the beautiful thing. When the Bible tells us to rejoice and to have joy, that's not the same thing as saying, be happy. Happy comes from the word happenstance, which is something that happens to you. If, if something happens to you, you might be happy. But if somebody runs into your car, that's a happenstance. You're not going to be happy. But you know what? You can still have joy. You can have joy when things are really good. And you can have joy when you get unexpected news from the doctor or when you've heard of a friend that has disappointed you, or when you're having troubles with work, or troubles with your children, or troubles with your family, you can still have joy because joy does not depend on situation. 
The church there was a suffering church there. Go back to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we we stopped at verse 4 a minute ago, but I want us to keep reading in verses 5 and 6. Acts chapter 17, verse 5 and 6 says that the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, obviously the perfect place to get men if you want to form a mob, they find wicked men of the rabble and form a mob and they set the city in an uproar and attack the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I think it's interesting that you've got Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, they're, they're going their little dotted line to different cities on the map. And right behind them, you have this, this evil line of the jealous Jews that are following them places. And you've got those jealous Jews that follow them even to Thessalonica. And they come in and they say, no, they're, they're turning the world upside down. They're even coming to this place. Turn the world upside down. They meant that as a terrible thing to say, but what a, what a wonderful thing to say. If we're turning the world upside down, what a great thing that is. But look in 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. It says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. What's he talking about here? He says, as the churches in Judea. Okay, go back to Acts chapter 1, about verse 8. Jesus, before he ascended, he says to the apostles, he said, you will be witnesses, you will be ambassadors uh, for me beginning in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the world, right? He said, you're going to start in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria and the ends of the world. By the time we get to Paul, we're at phase three, end of the world, right? Ends of the world, not end of the world. So it started in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It started with the death of Jesus and the message that had been prepared up to that point. And then on the day of Pentecost, that great sermon there that this Jesus whom you crucified, he has made both Lord and Christ. What have we done? Well, here's what you do now. You repent and you're baptized into Christ. And you're saved by the blood that you shed, that God gave for you. That message had been preached there, but there arose a persecution by the time we get to chapter 7 and Stephen is the first martyr. And in chapter 8, Paul is still breathing out threats and ravaging the church and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. It says a great persecution arose against the church there. Paul saying, by the way, he had a pretty intimate knowledge of the, the problems that the church in Judea had been facing since he had caused a lot of them. But he says, you are imitating the church in Jerusalem and in Judea. They suffered, but they endured. And you're suffering the same thing from your countrymen as the Jews did there. And he said, what happened in verse 15? Who killed the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, the apostles, the Christ teachers, and and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. It says you're enduring the things that Christians have been enduring from day one. And you are sharing perfectly in what the Jewish Christians had been dealing with. And now the Gentile Christians, well, you're doing the same thing. Because guess what? There's no real such thing as a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian. There's Christians and we endure suffering and we face that. So we see that a church that is working 
And a church that is Christ imitating is going to be a church that is suffering. Because someone who is imitating Christ and they are working and they're doing all this with love and patience and joy, it's going to bother people that don't like that message. The Jews in Thessalonica said they had turned the world upside down. Jesus, in his lifetime, in John 15, says, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. Even before his death, before for the great message of the cross. He says, expect it to happen. And know that they hated me first. This isn't the first go around with this. And in verse 20, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. He says that you'll endure what the master endured. You're going to experience the same things. A church that confronts the world with the reality of righteousness and sin and judgment and hope that is only found through the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus Christ is going to suffer. It's going to happen. It might not be from physical persecutions. It might not be imprisonments. But you better believe it might be mockery and severe mockery. There's an old phrase that we've all heard, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie. Because words hurt. And words can make us feel like we're suffering. And losing friendships and being excluded. When in comparison, we might sort of put ourselves down and say, well, it's, it's really not what they were facing. It's not. That doesn't mean it's not real. That doesn't mean that we should discount it. But we need to understand that a church that confronts the world with the truth, is going to suffer for it. The church at Thessalonica was a suffering church. Number four, it was an anticipatory church. Look in chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Thessalonians again. Chapter 1, verse 10. It says, here they are, and they are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It says, we're, we know that there's going to be a judgment And there is wrath that is coming, but we are waiting from Jesus to come back. We're waiting for God's son from heaven. He raised from the dead. We're looking forward to that. And the Lord's church has always lived from day one with a view to the end. It's one of the only things, one of the only organizations that can't wait for things to be over. We can't wait for the end to come. Most groups that we start, that we're a part of, we say, oh, I hope this never ends. It's so much fun. Oh, it's so successful. We're doing great. I hope this never ends. But the Lord's church from the very beginning says, oh, I just can't wait for this to be over. Not because we hate it so much, but because what's coming is so much better. It's an anticipatory church. This is very different from the world. As we talked about most things in the world, they're saying, no, I don't want it to end. I want this to go on and on and on forever. Look at Second Peter chapter 3. Obviously a very familiar passage here that talks about the day of the Lord and, and the situation of Peter's time where people just thought, oh, I don't guess that's really going to happen. Everything, of course, has existed exactly the same from day one, right? Nothing dramatic or world-altering like a flood has ever happened. Look at verse 3. says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. With scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they'll say, Where is the promise of His coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is not just a religious scoffer. But this is the attitude of people today. You know, the world's still standing. It's been spinning for thousands of years. Nothing's going to change. It's going to go on and on and on. And if we're not careful, we can think, well, I guess Christ hasn't come back yet. Maybe he won't come back in my lifetime. I don't know if he will or not, but I might as well just live it on up while I'm here and, and, and do the best I can when I get to good old age. Then I'll really start to take things seriously when I grow up a little bit. But the attitude of a Christian really contrasts the attitude of the world. Where's the promise of his coming? Well, we know where the promise of his coming is. It's in his resurrection from the dead. That's the promise that he's coming back is that he went in the first place. But as we mentioned, when the world wants things to end, the Christian, or when the world wants things to go on, the Christian wants it to end. Revelation 22 and verse 12. Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to as his work shall be. And so we look at that and we say, oh, Jesus is coming quickly and he's bringing a reward. Now, that's going to elicit one of two responses, depending on where you stand uh, before the Lord. If you are living righteously and you're walking in the light and you're striving to love him and, and his people every day, then that reward is a positive thing. On the other hand, you start to think about him giving to every person according to his works. Well, maybe that might strike a, a little bit of fear in you, too. If you start to think about, well, maybe I don't want what I deserve just yet. Maybe I want to make some changes. But anticipation of what is coming is what is causing us and motivating us to live for him today. That's what was causing them to suffer and to try to imitate Christ then. It's what they expected from the future. And that should motivate what we do today as well. Look with me in Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Second Peter 3, verse 10, Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, in other words, since all this is going to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. A couple of things that he says there, since the day of the Lord is coming, he says, what sort of people should you be? living in holiness and godliness. And he says, since we're waiting for a place where righteousness dwells, he says, you better be diligent so that when he comes, he will find you without spot or blemish or at peace. And at peace. He says he wants you to be ready when he comes back. And he says he wants you to be ready now. That reminds me of the parable of the, the wise and foolish virgins. Some were ready and some were not. We won't go into all the details tonight. We know it well. 
They didn't know when he was coming back, but you can believe that some of them were not living as they ought. They had not planned as they ought. They were not prepared for him. But when we look to the future, that should motivate us. That should say, you know, why should I say no to this temptation? What's the consequence here? Maybe we can't think of a real strong consequence right now. Maybe we think, I'll just repent of it later. I'll deal with this problem later. But when we think about the future, that should cause us to make some drastic changes today. The church there was an anticipating church, but they were a steadfast church. Our last point of the evening, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is not the best time that putting a marker in 1 Thessalonians is a good idea. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 8. This is Timothy's report. In verse 6 he says, Timothy's come to us from you. He's brought us the good news of your faith and love. Reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. And in verse 8 he says, now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. That verse 8 is such an interesting verse because it sort of has uh, the ability, well, we have the ability to sort of gloss over it and not really consider what Paul is saying here. Let me rephrase it for you in a way that might, uh, might resonate with us today a little more. When we got the message that you were steadfast and that you were still standing for the truth, that's living for us. We were really living. Before then, I was worried and I was scared and I was wondering. But when I found out you were steadfast, that gave me vitality. That gave me life. In other words, that report made my day. That was important to me. In verse 8, when he says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And they were Standing fast in the Lord means a couple of things, though. Number one, it means that we're not wavering on doctrinal issues. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul writes to Timothy, and we can see how these things would be uh, relative to the situation we're talking about. He says, hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Hold the true words. Hold on to the pattern that has been set for us. We preach that as truth, don't we? That's right. And we need to do that. We need to stand for true doctrine. But not wavering and standing fast also means maintaining a steadfast love for one another. Sometimes we're either or. Sometimes we're hit or miss. Sometimes in the Lord's church, I think we sort of lean more towards making sure we're absolutely pure doctrinally. Even if we fall a little short on the love. Historically, we can see examples of that. A lot of us grew up maybe feeling like, I don't, I'm not afraid to express any questions or any sort of doubt or confusion about the Bible text. After all, I don't want somebody thinking that I'm trying to teach false error or something like that. And so we're afraid to, to, to speak or, or ask questions to get clarity. We need to make sure that we are holding both sides of this, just like our Lord did. Not wavering on doctrinal issues, but also... Uh, showing love that is steadfast for one another and for the Lord. When we're standing fast in the Lord, we need to understand that there's two parts of that because a person can be right on doctrinally, but dead spiritually. 
How do we know that's the case? We looked at this last night, didn't we, in Revelation 2, verse 4, with the, with the church at Ephesus. He says, I have this against you because you left your first love. He says, you hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. There are things that you cannot stand. There are truths that you are absolutely holding on to. You're doing great doctrinally, but you've left your first love. Why was it important for him to say that? It's because it's possible for a church to be steadfast doctrinally, but not one lick spiritual. We can miss the point if we're thinking that it's just about holding to the letter of the law. I seem, I remember a group of people that were very concerned with the letter of the law and they neglected the weightier things like loving others and caring for people. Starts with a P. But that's why a Christian needs to stand fast in terms of love and doctrine. We can't follow the, the worldly course and the denominational aspect of saying, let's just love. Love is gonna, love covers a multitude of sins after all. Let's just love, love, love. We're not going to really study the Bible or, you know, learn what it says or anything, but I know God is love and that's enough to go on. We can't go that far. But instead of thinking of it as a pendulum that swings from doctrine and then it swings back the other way to love and we're one side or the other, let's think of it as we've got the completion, 100% of doctrine and love. 100% Bible teaching, adherence to the gospel message, which is a message of love. It's one and the same. It works together. What about the church at Thessalonica? Look at this. It's a working, Christ-mimicking, suffering, anticipating, steadfast church that existed in the first century in the midst of great persecution They were a young church, but they still had these strong qualities. And Paul said, boy, I love that church. So let's not beat them up because the the Bereans are mentioned as being more noble. They were great. But the real question is not how great they were versus the Bereans. That's not really crucial. The question is, how do we measure up? What are we doing with the pattern that's left in our New Testaments? Are we looking at that and we shut our Bibles down and we say, wow, that was cool. They're, They're great. That Thessalonian church, boy. Or do we look at that and we say, oh, you know, there are some things they were doing that I wish I did better. There are some things that they did as a church, uh, a reputation they had because of the work they were doing that, you know, I wish we had that reputation too. Let's get busy building that reputation. Let's get busy and work. The church here can reach tremendous potential. And God has placed that within our reach and he will help us to meet that potential But that only happens when each one of us individually becomes personally responsible for that work as we're built together as body parts, joined together, fulfilling our role in our work and being unified to the head. That's what it's all about. But we can grow and we can do great things for the Lord if we follow the models he's left for us. You think about what the the church there endured, what they suffered because of the hope that they had. That's a hope that each one of us can have today. If you're a Christian, you know what that hope feels like. But perhaps you've forgotten that that hope's a real thing and that there will be a judgment one day and maybe you haven't been living as you ought to live. And that hope hasn't motivated you to godliness as much as you should. Make that right. Don't leave tonight with sin in your life that has separated you from your father as you've wandered back in the sin. Come back. Come back to the fold, to his arms. If you're not a Christian, there's sin in your life. You're separated from Christ. You haven't yet felt that hope, but you can. And you'll see that it's a life that is possible because of the grace of God. And he will meet you there at the cross. And he will bring you into his fold and welcome you if you submit to him. 
we can help you to make your life right, come right now while we stand and sing.